me. Father, we ask that you would take uh, these words, meager as they are, that we've prepared this morning, and that you would allow them to saturate our hearts, that you would sift us and search out areas where we need growth, tend to the dead spots in our heart and bring them to life. Minister to our souls through your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Stephen Poss is a European missiologist who's written extensively on uh, a post-Christian world, what it looks like to live in post-Christendom. And in his book, Pilgrims and Priests, he writes particularly on the rise of Christendom, uh, what it looks like for us to live in a Christianized culture. Uh, and he says, when push came to shove, one could benefit from becoming a Christian. That was at the heart of what it looked like to live in a Christian society, or at least a society that had a Christian conscience. So he said, when push came to shove, one could benefit from becoming a Christian. And what was this benefit? He writes this, for all those living in the so-called mission fields, the gospel always came with plows, antibiotics, schools, cars, and guns. Inevitably, the Western missionary was a representation of this culture. Not much force was needed to persuade people that Christianity was a religion that led to prosperity in many dimensions. Now that was during Christendom, but what about now? What about life in a post-Christian world? When Jesus is viewed by many... Not as a good teacher, not as a moral man, but actually as evil and harmful to the world. Over the last few weeks, as a core group, we've been looking at what does it look like to be a healthy church. Healthy churches produce healthy Christians, and healthy Christians help produce healthy churches. It is a symbiotic relationship where as we grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus, so too our churches ought to grow in the expression of that grace, both internally and externally. And so we've spent a few weeks uh, working our way through Romans chapter 12, and I'm actually just continuing that series here with you as a drop-in. So in Romans chapter 12, the first two verses we pick up on, Paul says, do not be conformed any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that by testing you may approve what is the will of God, that which is good, pleasing, and perfect. And he sort of starts this... In light of everything that's come in Romans chapters 1 through 11, what does it look like to live as a Christian? What is the internal, personal impact of living for Jesus? And then he expands that out. Not only is there an impact on me personally, but there's an impact on those closest to me inside the Christian community called the church. We see that in verses 3 through 13, the Christian in Christian context. But these verses that we have in front of us this morning beginning in verse 14 through verse 21, are about what it looks like to live as Christians in a pagan context. Christians in a pagan world. Christians in an unchristian, even hostile environment. And so that's what we're going to put in front of us. We're going to answer this question. My central focus, if you want to write it down, I always give a central focus. Uh, it's the point of the sermon. And it's a question this morning. Seven words. How do Christians live in pagan culture. 
How do Christians live in pagan culture? How do we live in pagan culture? I'm going to give us a a few things here, just straight out of the text. Uh, The first thing that I'll say here, how do Christians live in pagan culture? We live in proximity. First thing, we live in proximity. If you go back to Romans chapter 12, verse 9, uh, or, I'm sorry, verse 14, he says, Bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. Listen, for all of Christian history, there has been debate about the role of Christians in culture. How involved should Christians be in culture? Should the Christians be involved in culture? Should we just create our little holy communes and we're, we're in a slice of heaven on earth? In Jesus' own day, there were the zealots. They were the separatists. In fact, you read some of his disciples fell in this camp. Jesus' core group makeup, if you will, the 12 men who followed him most closely on this earth, were really an odd bunch of people who had very little in common. You had the Jewish nationalist zealots who wanted to overthrow Rome violently. And then you have the Roman sympathizers, Matthew, the, the tax collector. The most pro-Roman man you could find. And then you had everything in between. So how do we do this? You have the zealots, the separatists. We've seen the desert hermits. The monastics. The ascetics. The radical reformers. Puritans. Closer to home, even the homeschool movement. And in all of that, it it was all aimed to create a quote-unquote pure Christian faith community. And I think we should all affirm and say, there's nothing wrong with that. That's our desire. But we want a pure Christian community without mixture or error. But what do we notice in this text? What do we notice in this text? We notice this, that it assumes Proximity to those who are outside the household of faith. It assumes proximity to those who are outside the household of faith. Presence of Christians among pagans. How do we know this? Well, first it says, bless those who persecute you. Bless those who persecute you. The persecution that we're talking about would not have come. It would not have arisen from inside the household of faith. It would not have arisen from other Christians. Now, we can be mean to each other. I don't know if you've known that. Um, It does happen sometimes that we're not very nice to each other. But that's not what this is talking about. This is talking about life harm that happens to people as a result of your faith. And it can take on anything from a loss of job... Or in some countries around the world still today, the loss of your property, being imprisoned, or potentially still even death. That's persecution. That doesn't happen on the inside. These verses are, by context, directly applicable to those outside the household of faith. We see persecution. Then we also see emotional support. Humility. We see hurts. And we see justice. All of that requires being around people. None of these happen in isolation. 
and none are aimed at the inside community of the church. Jesus, in his high priestly prayer, in John chapter 17, he, he, said these, he prayed these words, I do not ask that you take them, referring to his disciples, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. I don't ask you that you take them out of the world. I ask that you keep them from the evil one. When we pray the Lord's Prayer, Lord, deliver us from evil. Some translations refer to deliver us from the evil one. It mirrors Jesus' high priestly prayer in John 17. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Listen, I'll, I'll say this, and if you want to, if you want to jot this down, I'll, I'll repeat it, but... Christians cannot isolate themselves from the pagan culture around them and remain faithful to Jesus' commands. Christians cannot isolate themselves from the pagan culture around them and remain faithful to Jesus' commands. Now, that's a challenge, isn't it? That hurts. That stings because we are that crowd. I'm guilty. From the time I graduated college until pretty much we moved here to plant this church, I lived in what I refer to as the Christian bubble. Seminary, working at a church, then working at a church in a Christian school. And so all of our friends, we were all on the inside. We were the insiders together. And what I lost was what I had pre-seminary and now moving back here to plant a church. I had lost those quote-unquote pagan connections. I had lost the relationships with those outside the household of faith. But we can go all the way through the thread line of Scripture, beginning all the way back in Genesis, Genesis chapter 12. God calls a man named Abram out of a pagan culture, out of a land of idolatry, and he says to him, go to a place that I will show you. Leave your father's house and your kindred and your tribe and go to a place that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation and I will bless those who bless you and I will curse those who curse you. To be covenantal, which is what we are as reformed people, is to inherently be missional. Friends, you and I have been blessed with the greatest of gifts in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And we weren't given that to hold it. How many times then, as we walk our way through the Old Testament Scriptures, we can go on to Deuteronomy chapter 4. The wisdom of living as God's people is going to shine as a light to those around us. Then we fast forward into Jesus' own word. Nobody lights a lamp and puts it under a bushel. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. We're to be noticed. And we're to be noticed for something in particular. It's not to be noticed because sometimes we're mean. We're to be noticed because the burning light of Jesus burns in us and shines out of us. So the second thing that we see beyond proximity as we're together with that proximity comes what I call emotional intelligence. Emotional intelligence. George G. Hunter, is a, he was a church growth expert, professor at Asbury Theological Seminary. Uh, and we can say what we want about church growth movement, but let's just, for the sake of the argument, uh, not judge other than just the statement in front of us. He says this, The ministry of affirmation requires the social-emotional uh, maturity to not take personally pagan expressions of distrust. And it requires spending time with them. That's proximity. 
affirming them and managing affirming experiences for them. So let me go back there. The ministry of affirmation, this is what it looks like to have social-emotional intelligence, to be emotionally supportive to people outside the household of faith. It requires social-emotional maturity to not take personally pagan expressions of distrust. Did you know that people don't trust the church? Did you know that people don't trust you if you are a Christian? Did you know that they are skeptical of you? They think you're weird. Perhaps a touch crazy. And we might be. But the reality is, is that people distrust. And I don't know, we could do a quick show of hands. I don't think we need to because we probably already know the answer to this. I asked our core group this last week. Ever been hurt by the church? Ever been hurt by a Christian? Now imagine being a person who doesn't have faith saying, See, and you're no different than all of these other people. What this isn't, friends, is this is not a plea for perfection. We of all people understand that. We are not perfect, can't be perfect, won't be perfect, but we belong to the one who is. Perfect in his grace. I love John's comment earlier before our confession of faith. This is a place of grace. And God help us if the church is anything other than that ever. So he says, the ministry of affirmation requires the social-emotional maturity to not take personally pagan expressions of distrust, and it requires spending time with them, affirming them, and managing affirming experiences for them. What does this mean? It means that as we become close with our non-believing neighbors, co-workers, family members, that we pay attention to what they celebrate and what they mourn, We pay attention to what they celebrate and what they mourn. And where we can, we genuinely celebrate and mourn with them. Jesus' comment here in verse 15, Rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep, is aimed at the outsider. Yes, we already do that with those inside, but this is how we live in pagan culture. And it's not pretense, it's not manipulative, it is genuine care and love for the person. In Matthew chapter 9, the end of the chapter, verses 35 to 38, Jesus preached a sermon on the mount, Matthew chapter 5 to chapter 7. And then he goes on a healing tour in chapters 8 and 9. And at the end, after he has literally cured every disease and every affliction that has come before him, even raising people from the dead along the way. Matthew records and says of Jesus, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them, for they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And then he said to his disciples, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out his laborers into his field. For the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Friends, when we see the the crowds, when we see the masses, when we see the pagan culture, 
I dare say the church's response is very seldom, if ever, compassion. Other emotions well up within us, don't they? I don't know about you, but sometimes I get a little miffed. A little angry. I sometimes say things about that pagan culture. And I look more like the sons of thunder asking God to call down fire than I do on the Savior who looked at me and said, I have compassion for you. You are a shepherdless sheep, lost and wandering. Friends, we understand the true need of every human soul. We understand the longing that actually resides inside every man, woman, and child. And though they find expressions to fill the void, the gap, the hurt, the wandering, the fear, we know who really fills it. And therefore, we ought to be the most compassionate of all people. Thirdly, we keep going through our text. We live, how do Christians live in pagan culture? We live in humility. We live in humility. Most translations take the Greek of verse 16, just as we have it here. Verse 16 says, live in harmony with one another. Um, I think that's a faithful and fair translation, but... Uh, I think context could allow us to translate the Greek like this. Think this way toward others. Think this way toward others. The Greek words that are there could, could actually be rendered, especially given our context, think this way towards others. And then we put a colon there. Think this way toward others. Don't be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. And then I would insert a parenthesis here on the next part, because he's going to elaborate what it looks like. But then we pick it back up at verse 21. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Christian, no one is beneath you. No one is beneath you. I think if we were honest, I, at least I know if I were honest and I said, hey, I, are there irredeemable people in this world? My theology and being a pastor, of course, I have to say, no, nobody's beyond redemption. But in reality, I look at that and I'm like, yeah, I think that person's probably, yeah, they're, they're hopeless. <laughs> and we all have those people in mind. Like, you've already got in your mind who it is that you think, who are the irredeemables? Here are, who are the irreconcilables? Who are the people who could never possibly come to Jesus? We all have them. And maybe it's not that we don't think they could come to Jesus. Maybe it's more that we hope they don't. I mean, I could list off some really bad people in history, right? Adolf Hitler, irredeemable. According to God's grace, actually, no. But I don't know about you, I hope. 
if I can just be perfectly candid. Osama bin Laden? I mean, those are bad dudes. Maybe for us it's political opponents. People who in their identity are grotesquely and pitifully confused and lost. Maybe it's just people with tattoos. <laughs> Had to lighten the mood. No one is beneath you. You are not more deserving of belonging to Jesus than the people I just mentioned. So we ought to live in humility. To be humble servants of Jesus. Do not be haughty but associate with the lowly. We contrast uh, social positions here. Don't seek to be high and mighty but follow the way of Jesus who was meek and lowly. James Cousins and Barry Posner in their book The Leadership Challenge uh, says this, the word human and the word humble both derive from the Latin humus, meaning earth. To be humble and human is to be down to earth with your feet planted firmly on the ground. In our celebrity age, this sounds like nonsense. Even in our, I mean, we can just talk about Austin, right, and, and the surrounding areas. I was at a coffee shop in Dripping Springs doing premarital counseling with a couple, and then they noticed a YouTube celebrity star sitting at the table over us. So I'm like, yeah, I see this guy every time I come here. I had no idea who he was because I don't follow that. But then, you know, the guy of the couple walks over and he's like, he introduces himself. And it's like, yeah, sure enough, this is the guy. And he's got millions of followers. So we're in a celebrity craze. And all the cool kids are doing it, right? Our fortunes, our entire identity can literally be changed overnight with some virus. I'm sorry, viral uh, change <laughs> that happens. Let's not pass this off as a youth problem, though. Let's think about the zip codes we come from or strive to be in, the cars we drive, what floor is the office on, or which beach did you remote in from this summer? Christian, that's not what our lives are about. It's not our central focus. How do we handle hurts when the pagan culture assaults us? And insults us and hurts us, we respond with humility. Don't repay evil for evil when wronged. We don't wrong in return. But unfortunately, I think for many Christians, we take the offensive strategy here and we wrong first. You got to wrong before you get wronged, and you got to get the godders before they get you. As a Medea reference. Listen, you're likely wrestling at this point with the impossibility of living this way, and Paul, I think, already assumed the pushback. And here's our parenthetical note. God will one day right every wrong that has happened. God's going to do it. God's going to one day right every wrong, so do good. Do good for your neighbors. Do good for your enemies. Do good for your community. And do it because you're a Christian. Will you take flack? Will you be exposed? Mocked? Probably. There's a very high possibility of that. And Paul tells us, just keep doing good. Finally, the last thing we'll look at here, we'll overcome evil. Uh, we might very well like to interpret this as, uh, when it says, 
Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. We, we might want to take this as we just stand for truth. I stand for truth. But that posture is far too defensive for this text. This is an offensive game plan. And Jesus wants us to run up the score on doing good. So in our individualistic and watered-down Christianity, you might hear a preacher say, you know, I need to overcome the evil in me. Except that might even be too definite because we don't like to talk so negatively. I actually once knew a teacher in a Christian school who disliked the NIV translation of Romans um, 12.9 because it said, hate what is evil. And she didn't think that our kids should memorize that verse because it said hate. So we could draw ourselves with, okay, well, overcome your negative thoughts or your, your negative feelings or your negative emotions. But that's not our text. Our text says to overcome. It literally means triumph over evil, be victorious and win over evil. Evil is defined as this, that which is either one, morally wrong, or two, harmful, whether morally wrong or not. So we triumph over both of those things. That which is morally wrong and that which is harmful to human flourishing. And if you want to talk about human flourishing, friends, if you want to know what it is to be the best human you can be, it is to live as God designed and intended you to, in relationship with Him, in love with Him, and loving other people. That's what human flourishing looks like. And God has provided for us the way to do that in the person of Jesus. So how do Christians live in pagan culture? By showing the way of true human flourishing. We'll close with this. Jeremiah chapter 29 verse 7. Jeremiah tells us how to pray. This was in the context of Babylon. Pagan culture. The loss of Jewish identity. Seek the welfare of the city where I've sent you into exile. And pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its shalom you will find your shalom. Romans chapter 12, in the shadow of Nero, who would burn Christians alive in his garden at night while riding naked on a horse, shouting mockingly, I am the light of the world. Bless and do not curse. In a post-Christian world, in a post-Christendom world, we should look to the pre-Christendom world as we answer our question. I'll end with this quote from Tom Holland, the author and historian in his book, Dominion. Command and swagger were the very essence of the cult of the Caesars. To rule as an emperor was to rule as a victorious general. In every town and every square, statues of Caesar served as a reminder to his subjects that to rank as the son of a god was by definition to embody earthly greatness. No wonder then that Paul proclaiming that there was only the one son of God and that he had suffered the death of a slave, not struggling against it, but submitting willingly to the lash, should have described the cross as a scandal. The offensiveness of it was not something that Paul ever sought to soften. Let's close in prayer. Pray then earnestly to the Lord of the harvest that he might send out laborers into his field. For the harvest is plentiful and the laborers are few. Jesus, would you send us? 
Would you give us the faith and the boldness to live as your commissioned people to go to all nations, teaching them to observe everything that you have commanded and baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Pray, our Father, that we be reminded of your grace as we come to your table, of what your compassion led you to do on our behalf. And may we model that same compassion and live closely, incarnately, with those who don't yet know you. Bless us now in Jesus' name. Amen.